0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.
1: Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's incredibly fortuitous timing with two... Fabulous experts on the subject. I say fortuitous timing because President Trump finished his short speech on China in time for us to all log on to this this webinar. Our speakers' bios can be either found on our um, event page of our website. So let me just briefly introduce our speakers. Most importantly, they are both members of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. And the program is designed to get them to do precisely what they're doing today. So I thank both of you for doing this. Uh, Jude is the Freeman Chair of China Studies at, the, at CSIS in DC. He's also a senior advisor at Crumpton Group, which is a geopolitical risk advisory firm based in Arlington, Virginia. He's also an adjunct fellow at, of the Asia Pacific Security Program at Center for New American Security. Sunyun is a senior fellow and co-director of the East Asia program and director of the China program at the Stimson Center in Washington, DC. Both of them are sought after for their expertise in this period when um, expertise on China in the not-for-profit sector is still there in the government it's interesting how much is still there but first before starting what we had planned for the program uh president trump has just completed this uh, uh tirade against china with somewhat limited uh facts on um on policy prescriptions on what's gonna happen so let me both ask Jude and then and Sunyun. To kind of comment on that before we go into the uh liang Kui, before the results of the the two sessions that just concluded
2: jude uh, uh, sure well first of all thank you very much for for the invitation and it's a it's a real pleasure to be doing this and and especially with uh, with, with sun yun so i really in, appreciate the opportunity um having just come fresh from watching this um uh this this press conference a, a couple thoughts i mean my first thought is the um the we should all expect, and I think we already were expecting, but clearly U.S.-China relations to continue in an incredibly, incredibly dark direction because the the, the underlying tone of, of the President's remarks, I think, were, were incredibly, incredibly uh, dire, direct, and uh, looking forward to the election in November, I think this indicates the tone that, that the administration is gonna adopt as, it, as it's in election mode. I was just writing notes for phrases that that stuck out to me. One of them is clearly this idea of, he said the cover up of the Wuhan virus. So we're gonna be back again to the, the naming, the name and shame of, of the virus and the origin story is obviously gonna to continue to play a key role here and, as the administration moves forward. Um, Another phrase that stuck out to me, and this is not a surprise, but indicates the now near permanence of this idea of decoupling is the president said, as we reshore our supply chains, um, we need to be going towards quote, economic independence, which is a, a pretty radical idea in an era where globalization and interconnectedness has brought so much prosperity and national strength to the United States. Um, this, is a, this is a very radical vision, I should say. And um, this was just slipped in here in between some announcements of completely walking away from the WHO. But I think these are important things to watch because the economic cost to the United States from even moving towards economic independence is pretty significant. On the Hong Kong issue, and again, uh, you and I were were going back and forth over email before we came on. um, I I think we're all scratching our heads to figure out exactly what was just said here. It was clearly a very dire it was clearly a very direct message saying we're we're now done treating Hong Kong the way we used to under u s law, but the second part of it is here's what's going to change, and I have to say outside of the top line announcements of export controls sanctions, um, I'm still not sure exactly what this will look like because uh, Trump gave himself some wiggle room by saying um, w- with limited exceptions or with some exceptions and of course, exactly what those are is going to be really important, so now we're just going to have to wait for probably Treasury and state to come out with more specific uh, statements about what exactly this will look like. But final point here, um, this now, in retrospect, this is what I guess we should have expected, which is a, a very, quote unquote, strong statement that is a, quote unquote, response, but yet hasn't exactly um, done anything. And so we'll, we'll now have to wait to see exactly what it is that the Trump administration will do. And clearly, this gives them some wiggle room here of exactly what measures they're going to deploy.
0: Thank you, Steve. Um, it's an honor to be on this program with Jude. On um, the statement that President Trump just made, I'm trying to gauge the, how the Chinese will perceive this uh, this statement and how they will react to it. I think Beijing has fully expected that US will remove Hong Kong's special trading status based on the national security law. In fact, I think that decision is even on some level welcomed by by people in Beijing, because removing Hong Kong's special trading status will damage Hong Kong's economy and diminish its its role as an international financial center. However, other than the damage that the decision will inflict upon U.S. economic interests and the interests of U.S. companies, it will also serve to deplete Hong Kong and Hong Kong people of the international attention their economic privileges, and the political support they have enjoyed so far. So literally, this is turning Hong Kong into just another city, and that's exactly what Beijing had wanted. Hong Kong is just another Chinese city. So therefore, I suspect in Beijing's calculation, the economic cost of the removal of the special status of Hong Kong will be carried by money, but the political benefits will be enjoyed by Beijing alone. So in addition, forcing the U.S. to remove Hong Kong special treating status will also remove Washington's ability to hold Beijing hostage to the issue so other than the sanctions that we have heard about such as on Chinese officials or on Chinese entities I think those sanctions in the Chinese perception have lost their deterrence power over Beijing due to the constant and the exhaustive use of them in the past three and a half years so I don't think that this is this decision would come as a surprise and I don't think it has exceeded Beijing's original expectation as for what Washington would do. Thank you.
1: Do you think there's enough sophistication in this policy? Again, it was it was clear the policy was literally agreed upon in the moments, um, or the announcement of what was going to be said was agreed upon in the moments leading up to the speech that the the speech running, you know, it was 15 minutes late was because they were still debating what was going on. Is there a certain level of sophistication where they're hoping that, you know, what we have is an NPC, basically, authorization for the standing committee to write a law? Is it so sophisticated? You say, gosh, you know, if you write a law that isn't so bad, you know, it won't, we won't enact a lot of these things. Or am I just kind of being overly optimistic?
2: I think that was just in the past couple of days discussions I've, I've, I've been having with folks. I think that was one of the ideas is, look, there's no way we're going to be able to get Beijing to with, withdraw from moving forward with the law. So there's really only two pressure points or areas where you could conceivably influence the, the text, the drafting of the law, um, and then how they might be interpreting it. That second one felt like a long shot. So it was really just this idea of possibly we can now, we, we come out with our opening gambit, which is we've now put all the pieces on the table just now saying, look, we're willing to do all this up to and including sanctions, but we're not exactly going to announce what it is yet. And and now it's, it's a, a move counter for move to try to get Beijing to adopt, uh, affect its drafting. But I, I don't know, but you thinks about this. I, I think Beijing's going to draft the law as Beijing's going to draft the law. They, I, don't, I don't think, I think this is a domestic issue for them. This is hardliners in Beijing who are going to write this law because they see a, a, a significant problem down there. And I think we're overestimating the leverage we have here in the United States if we think we're going to be able to get into the drafting room of the NPC Standing Committee to get them to strike passages or rewrite them. But, but I could be wrong on that.
1: Yeah. Sun Yen?
0: Well, Zhang Yuen only announced this national security legislation on Hong Kong on the evening of May 21st in Beijing before the two sessions actually um, be- began. So that basically leaves the United States eight days to react to this, uh, this announcement. And like Jude said, we don't know what it looks like. We roughly know that they're gonna target the four types of activities, secession, subversion, terrorism, and external intervention, uh, interference in Hong Kong. But how, it, how the law will look, what the law will look like, and more importantly, what the law enforcement will look like. I think that's a bigger question here. We can react to the law, but the law actually in the end will have to be enforced on the ground in Hong Kong by some security agencies that we don't know who will be, uh, who will be in charge of. So I think those details are not yet, uh, yet revealed. And I think U.S. is in a difficult place to calculate the risk and the benefits between punishing Hong Kong for, what, for something that Hong Kong didn't really do and punishing China, which is really charting the the course on the national security law. And it's very difficult to separate those two.
1: I think Jude is absolutely right that that, um, our ability to influence this law, given the relationship that exists between the drafting of the law, given the relationship that exists between the United States and China is extremely low. What... Who can actually influence the drafting of the law, though, are the pro-Beijing legislators in Hong Kong, that they actually do have an ability to affect what that law looks like, to affect kind of the things uh, Sun Yun is talking about you know, what kind of agencies are going to, have what their enforcement power, are they going to operate through the Hong Kong police? Are they going to be able to actually enforce themselves? These are all open questions and would have enormous effects on how Hong Kong um, exists in the future. One of the, in a conversation I had with a very fair, I can't say who it was, but a fairly prominent person from Hong Kong. uh, They said, um, you know, we hope the United States stands back and just doesn't do anything because any participation through the United States will make it worse for the people of Hong Kong, which was a very interesting uh, um, statement.
2: Yeah, just a, one, one quick thought there. But of course, you have many on, the, on the, the protest side and the activist side who feel a sense of desperation and are one of the reasons they've thrown up this Hail Mary of, of trying to draw the United States in is because they recognize without some sort of external force or, or pressuring Beijing that, that all is lost here. So I, I think I, I, that, that makes sense what you heard as well, but I think there's a, there's a pretty widespread round of support for the US getting in, in, involved here. I think, I, think, I think Sun Yun's absolutely right though about the threading that needle of how do you quote unquote punish Beijing without wrecking the Hong Kong economy it's difficult, and and just my own personal opinion. I, I didn't. I think you could put sanctions on the table because that gives you a bit more of a scalpel here to inflict punishment. Messing with with Hong Kong's economic status, though, always seemed to me to be the last resort, um, because the, the the consequences are likely to be so dire, and they're going to be borne by the people of Hong Kong, not not by the U.S. government. But it seems that the government has already. Um, in many ways made that that decision our government our government sorry yes our government has has made made that decision
1: yeah certainly the the politicians in beijing are saying you know life will go on as normal this is if if you're not a terrorist a separatist you know da 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 da. but obviously i think as i said in a program you know one man's protest is another man's subversion Uh, i mean uh,
2: the only uh, i don't want to drone on about this but um, Beijing liked having Hong Kong be Hong Kong I don't think Beijing was necessarily looking for Hong Kong to lose the special status which being a, a Chinese city outside of domestic Chinese law afforded it and certainly the role Hong Kong has played for just senior elite in Beijing over the past several decades of facilitating transfers of of, of ill-begotten and, and legally begotten wealth is very important so I, I maybe somewhat disagree on on the I don't think Beijing wanted this, at least not now and on this timing, because Hong Kong is a is a pretty good piggy bank, or facilitation of a piggy bank for a lot of a lot of elite in in the mainland. But if it's happening, you know, uh, I I think now they're just going to adjust and and they're not going to be crying for for too long over this. So, you know,
1: I I agree with Jude. They did not want it. You agree with that? They were pushed into it by basically 12 months of hong kong being frozen people crying independence you know this basically hong kong not functioning that they really do perceive it that way and they were pushed into it
0: well i think without what happened last year um beijing probably would have preferred it um the way that you and jude have described but i think after the turbulence last year after witnessing that beijing's policy basically has no future in hong kong and the more they let this faster and the longer the wait, the worse the issue is going, to, is going to become. So I would say Beijing made a calculated decision. They understand the risks, they understand what the US rea- reaction in the worst shape will, will look like, but they also determined that this is probably the best timing to do this because uh, US-China relations currently offers Beijing no optimistic mm-hmm. expectation over pretty much any ground. So in Beijing's calculation, and based on what what I have been uh, having the conversations with Chinese, um, they believe that the relationship between U.S. and China has hit the rock bottom. And there's nothing Beijing can do to please U.S. either way in, in today's political environment anyway. Since the relationship is already in its worst shape, short of a war, now might be the best opportunity for Beijing to force on this national security law anyway. So U.S. Will, will be critical of, of China, regardless of what China does or doesn't do on Hong Kong. So I think that's why they perceive this as a good opportunity as any opportunity.
2: Yeah, that, 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 that makes
1: sense. Yeah, I, I see it more that they were, they were pushed into it by events, as you said, Sun in of the last year. That they, They're really not doing this in the context of U.S.-China relations. They're doing it in the context of what's going on in Hong Kong that they kept drawing red lines. So when Xi Jinping visited on the 20th anniversary of the handover, he gave a speech which laid out certain red lines, and then it gets crossed. Then they, you know, it, it, they draw these red lines and they get crossed. And now, you know, the, the legislature is not, you know, the, the 2003 failure was minor. The the, the attempt to pass the, the national security law then was minor. If it were proposed today, it would fail even further. So they, they realized that it is not possible to get where they want to go. And the situation in Hong Kong was deteriorating. And we don't agree with this. We don't think protests are a national security issue, but that's not what the, the, the leaders in Beijing think. So they were kind of, I think Jude said that pushed into it is actually a very, uh, it's a very good way of, of looking at it. Um, but let's not spend the whole time, since people want, came to hear about the, the Liang Kui, as we were joking, as the three of us were joking, uh, it. not such a joke, but we were, it was the first time that any president of the United States has responded to anything that has gone on in the National People's Congress, at least to my knowledge. So it's quite something, and a lot went on at the this NPC, besides the, and the, and the CPCCC, besides um, you know, the Hong Kong legislation. So if we wanna talk about some of that for a while, uh, each of you talk for a few minutes and then I'll ask some questions and then we've already got a bunch of questions from the audience. So Jude, if you wanna kick that off, that would be great.
2: Sorry, classic Zoom mistake there, talking on mute. so I think the division of labor will be, I'll just, I'll talk a little bit about some of the more domestic policy focused uh, issues here and, and, and then Sun Yun will talk about the, some of the foreign policy implications. And I really just, in the interest of time, um, wanna talk about a few of the salient um, narratives and, and policies that, that came out, especially from, uh, from the government work report. Um, I mean, this to your point, Steve, we were talking about earlier on the MPC, it's not only it's the first time we've had what seems to be a direct response, um, I don't really remember before 2018, the MPC garnering this amount of, of attention. Um, and it usually was just described as a rubber stamp and, and folks in, in your city, Steve, would be watching to see what the, the growth target is. But that's really it. This changed in 2018 when we had the massive government restructuring plan, which, which came out of nowhere to many of us. Um, which fundamentally rewrote much of the political system in China, as well as the relationship between the Communist Party and and the government. Um, This, again, was a a much-anticipated MPC, I think for reasons both because this was going to be a a unique MPC coming off the back of a two-month delay, China undergoing its own significant COVID-19 crisis, but also given we knew we were going to be looking to see the, the tone, the statements coming out of it, and what those portended for US-China relations. And I think on all these fronts, um, it did not disappoint. Um, a, a few notes on, um, on the economic front. First is the level of, of um, caution that came through from Li Keqiang's government work report. A lot of the coverage on China in COVID-19, especially after March and April, has been on the triumphalism from Beijing <clears throat> on an international front, but domestically, The narrative has always been from Xi Jinping and the government, um, look, we've made it this far, um, that's good, but we have a long road ahead of us. And that came through here as well. And I I think the the quote from Li Keqiang is, the pandemic is not over. And a lot on the economic front was targeted towards this this idea that look, um, we're making headway on some of the containment here, but our economy is in trouble. Obviously, the most notable element of this was this remarkable development of scrapping the growth target. Um, first time this has happened since 1990. And remember the time we were in in 1990 after Tiananmen Square massacre, the economy was in shambles. That shows you the level of seriousness that, that, the, uh, that Beijing is looking at the economic situation um, right now and really seeing some rough waters. Um, given the, the still relative opacity of reporting, it's difficult to suss this out. But nonetheless, anecdotally, and even in government documents, we're seeing that especially small to medium enterprises are really, really struggling right now. And that's why a lot of the support that Beijing has been put out during the MPC was directed towards local governments. So you both had a a rising of the fiscal deficit, which is gonna be injecting another trillion renminbi to local governments. And then another, they earmarked another trillion for these special government bonds for the explicit purpose of of COVID-19 control. So a lot of support directed to local uh, economies and throughout the government work report, the idea was jobs, 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 uh, employment uh, protection and stability. Um, Last two points, uh, there's been this idea that has really uh, gained prominence over the past couple months that Xi Jinping and the government have been pushing of the the six protections Um, that again came through and those are job security, people's livelihoods, Um, security of business, food and energy, supply chains, and uh, sort of better functioning of of lower level government. So they're looking for both protecting um, um, Chinese people's ability to be uh, prospering and living. And again, remember this is the year which Xi Jinping is supposed to deliver on his, uh, his, his promise of doubling per capita GDP from its 2010 levels as part of the poverty alleviation campaign. Obviously that's, that's experiencing a, a, a setback naturally so because of COVID-19, but they are really, I think, focusing on many of the basics in these six protections of, of the Chinese economy. And the last thing I point is, scrapping the growth target um, really does show, I think, how the, the government is being quite pragmatic here and how it's responding to uh, COVID-19 and if we strip away where the space that I look at most, which is at kind of elite politics and ideology, where the story is very, very dark and depressing, you're still seeing um, some of the more pragmatic elements in the Chinese political system operating now, and really into full gear here. And I think um, what comes out of the NPC to me is, although you have that, that uh, higher level where there's just an extraordinary amount of party control and ideological control, they have loosened the reins a bit on um, sort of the subnational level to respond to this. And I think that's a, from an economic standpoint, I think that's quite a uh, quite a heartening sign. So um, I will just, I will uh, pause there for the moment.
1: Great, Sun Yun.
0: Thank you, Steve. So uh, I'll primarily focus on the foreign policy implications. We know that the two sessions this time did not focus primarily on the, on the foreign policy issues. But I think because of the COVID-19, when China was indeed faced with a, um, a crossroad question, a, a, a question of choices moving forward. And when we first started to prepare for this uh, for this discussion, it was before the two sessions, and we believed that China was facing two directions, and which makes this two sessions a critical conference or critical meeting for the, to determine the future of China there's an there's a, well, issue of balancing between the domestic priority and the foreign priority, such as Belt and Road, and those represent two very different directions. So in terms of the foreign policy, China has just experienced the uh, test of the COVID-19 crisis and what the world has witnessed as a wolf warrior diplomacy on steroids. So the question I think following that is that will China stick to its assertive of warrior diplomacy, or it will take a more um, contractive policy to try to build a better relationship with, uh, with the rest of the world. And like Jude pointed out, he's absolutely correct that these two sessions has primarily focused on the domestic economic development side and the guarantee of people's livelihood in China. And when we look at the, uh, the work report from Li Keqiang and his press conference yesterday, most of the, uh, the attention has been paid to how to stimulate growth and how to cultivate uh, employment. And the foreign minister Wang Yi's press conference and most of his time had been spent on basically as what I see as propaganda to sing high praise for China's performance during the COVID-19 and how much contribution China made towards, uh, towards the world. So what kind of foreign policy of China should we expect after this, uh, this, this two sessions, this this Yanghui? If you asked me this this question two weeks ago, I would have a very different answer. I would be much more hopeful about the Chinese foreign policy taking a more practical, low-profile, conservative, or even a moderate line of uh, of foreign strategy. Especially, I'm sure people remember that when Xi Jinping visited Shanxi province on May 12th, he he made a statement that caught everybody's attention he used the words that Hu Jintao used, to, uh, used to, to prioritize, which is which means do not create trouble for yourself. And I think that really made people hopeful, including me, that, hey, maybe we're entering a period where China will stop making trouble. But based on what we have seen, um, the la- national security law on Hong Kong during the two sessions and the Chinese foreign policy performance on, for example, South China Sea on Taiwan, on the border dispute with India, on um, the, threatened, the threatened the threats of trade war with Australia, and the most recent labeling Canada as the American accomplice on the issue of Beng Wanzhou. I think what we're most likely going to face following this is an even more radical state of Chinese foreign policy. It's going to be more assertive, we're even more aggressive. And here's why. Um, I think, the Chinese foreign policy, of course, all the po- foreign policy moves are deeply related to Chinese domestic politics. I think because of COVID-19, the elite politics and political condition in China has become even more complicated than before the COVID-19. So uh, I'm sure people have, have observed there had been a series of voices and events that challenged the current Chinese government and Chinese top leader during the, uh, during the COVID-19. Uh, questioning the Beijing's performance and Beijing's effectiveness or Beijing's failure to counter COVID-19 in the early stage. I think what that means is that the internal struggle or the internal conflicts within the Chinese political elites and that the ensuing potential instability has increased instead of decreased because of COVID-19. So therefore, I think for for, for the Chinese top leaders, how to consolidate his authority how to stabilize people's opinion, how to consolidate people's support of uh, of his government. The most effective way has been to divert the domestic attention. And there are two reasons for that. The first one is when the external stress on China is on the rise, it gives Beijing more room to strengthen the internal cohesiveness and the internal coherence of the, uh, of, the, of the Chinese people. And it will help to build what they call the internal consensus, the gongshi, about what is the most important um, priority for the, for the Chinese nation. So foreign threats do serve that purpose. And the second reason is that um, if we look at the record since 2013 in the South China Sea, for example, the building of the artificial islands and China's Belt and the Road Initiative, this type of relatively radical and even aggressive foreign policy moves have been very effective in enhancing the authority and credibility of the of the Chinese leaders, especially in the Chinese leader's internal political struggle with his political uh, with his political opponents. And the example that you will hear a lot from from even the Chinese is that, um, that how Xi Jinping was using the South China Sea to. Boost his credibility and his domestic popularity vis-a-vis his political opponents. And at the time, it was Bo Xilai, Lin Jihua, and and Zhou Yongkang. So also related to the legitimacy issue with the credibility issue of the Chinese top leader is also how Chinese foreign policy will react and counter all kinds of criticisms or even condemnations on China because of COVID-19. And this is also a relatively isu- new issue, an unprecedented issue for the Chinese foreign policy. And um, of course, there is a cl- there's a, the waves of the claim of compensation from China. China needs to deal with that. And China also needs to provide a satisfactory explanation to the Chinese people that how Beijing has been defending China's name or China's reputation internationally. So there's a very strong logic, well, whether it's logical or not, there's a very strong argument in in China that if the external environment has turned sour and the United States has been leading these campaigns to attack China on every single aspect, COVID-19 being on the top of it. So regardless of how China tried to keep a low profile or how China could try to mend the ties with the rest of the world, the substantive progress of that effort is not going to be there. Because uh, unless, according to the Chinese logic, unless China basically does what U.S. wants China to do—to abandon the high-tech industry, to abandon its uh, industrial um, de- the defense modernization—and say yes to to Washington, um, U.S. is not going to stop charging China with all these uh, with all these crimes. So, but that kind of compromise was that kind of a conciliatory uh, position is certainly not in the interest of the the Chinese top leaders or in the interest of the Chinese government. And that is to say that I think the Chinese believe that a compromise or concessions is not going to deter or stop the current U.S. anti-China strategy. So in their calculation, if China is going to face humiliation in terms of its foreign relations and China does not respond assertively to the Accusations, then the um, the the pride or the legitimacy that they have gathered among the Chinese people will be will be uh, will be eroded, and I think that is the fundamental reason why the wolf warrior diplomacy of China is going to is going to escalate after the two sessions and after the COVID-19 instead of de-escalate. I'll stop there, and I look forward to the discussion. Thank
1: you that's terrific both of you it's just just wonderful um what did you make in lee Keqiang's report he he in his work report he said we should look uh we, we should investigate the origins of the of COVID 19. so he explicitly said we should do that
2: yeah um and and obviously uh... Uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping said something similar uh, when he briefed, uh, when he spoke to WHO. Um, I, um, I I'd hate to be cynical about this, but what they're, he's not saying, let's have an investigation centered around Wuhan to find out if the virus originated there. Well, what, what they want to do, and this is the smart move, is to initiate a process, as, as Xi Jinping himself said, let's have this be global, let's have this be led by the WHO, in other words, let's have this take a long time. And as Xi Jinping himself said, this is gonna be a, a summing up. This is going to be a, a lessons learned. This is going to be a what worked, what didn't. So I think this is just absolutely brilliant of, um, say, yeah, let's do an investigation. I'm gonna set, let's, I'll set the rules of WHO. Let's just have it take a long time. We'll have lots of committees. Um, I think that's really smart. What that won't do and what that's not intended to do is to be a, a real, a, a, tailor a very laser-like investigation of exactly where, what is the origin of this. And they've said this consistently, which is, look, the time for that is once we're through this. And again, which is very, very smart to me. Of course, every plot of of every pandemic movie is always about racing to find the origin right away. So if China was ever making that movie, it would be quite boring because it would be mostly uh, international committees. But nonetheless, I think we should be careful when they make statements like this, they're being very, cl- I think they're being very clear and smart about what they're trying to do and they're not trying to do. And they're not trying to invite an investigation of boots on the ground from the U.S. and other actors to be mucking around in Wuhan to find out if this originated there. But I'm, I'm cynical, but that's my interpretation. Sun Um
0: Yes, Steve. So there are at least five caveats to the Chinese proposal or the Chinese way of uh, defining this uh, investigation. So the first one is a name. Instead of international investigation, the effort, according to the Chinese foreign ministry, will be named the Review Commission, greatly altering its purpose and reducing its severity. Second caveat is the timing. Like Jude said, the review can only happen after the COVID-19 is over, ruling out any near-term actions. Third caveat is the authorization. So according to the Chinese, the review will have to be authorized by WHA or its executive committee basically um, giving China controls through the China-friendly countries at WHA. The fourth caveat is a composition of the Review co- of the review Commission. The Chinese already said the Review Commission can only be organized by the Director General of WHO, who we know is a very China-friendly figure, and I think he will ensure a China, at least a China-neutral composition. And the last caveat is the, the coverage. The Chinese says the Review Commission will review the global response to COVID-19, rather than that of China. So it will not be about the China's responsibility, it will be and about in, how the in world-
1: In addition to that of China, not, not rather that, right?
0: Um, it's well, not saying
1: we're not, we're not, they're not welcoming the uh, investigation in China.
0: Well, they said it's a global response, so it will include China, but also everybody else.
1: <laughs> Any sign of dissent at this, either the CPC, I noticed the vote on Hong Kong had one negative and <laughs> extensions and one person forgot to push the button.
2: Well, no, you don't want to make it look rigged, Steve. You've got to have got have the, uh, you know, you've got to have the appearance of an open vote. Um, I, just on the dissent issue, I, I think um, a couple of thoughts here. Um, one is this is the perennial position of, of a lot of sort of external China watchers is kind of waiting for the moment when the sort of People take to the take to the streets. Um, I think what anger or pressure was building up against the C administration in in January early February uh, w- dissipated as soon as the uh, it, it, countries around the world but especially the United States really started to openly flub and flounder in a response and I think that really worked to the advantage of the C administration of basically saying I think you got it bad here Look, look at what happened happened over there. The second point though is, um, in a system where you have such extraordinary levels of control um, designed specifically to dissipate, divide, uh, opposition and dissent, we should not confuse the absence of obvious dissent with its actual absence. And I think there is a lot of dissatisfaction in China, especially from what, we, what, what the leadership would call rightists, but we'd call liberals who are really genuinely concerned about the direction that China is going under, under the Xi administration. Obviously this started on the economic front with the failed, failure to deliver on the third plenum uh, in 2013, but this has now grown into, uh, I think more broadly, just folks who looked at the Deng legacy and where China was headed in terms of its domestic politics and an economic, economic policy and are seeing in Xi Jinping a real hardliner. Um, who is looking to undo or reverse many of those? And the problem is, there's just not many avenues for expressing that dissent anymore. It used to have some platforms like the magazine Yen Huang but th- those have all been obliterated. But I think um, let's not both expect that people will take to the streets anytime soon, but I also don't think we should expect everything is hunky dory. And Xi Jinping is wi- you know, widely loved by all the Chinese people just because we're not hearing these voices. The system is designed to sort of quash the avenues for those voices to be expressed. Sun Yen? Um
0: Well, we know that Xi Jinping is not famous for democratic centralism, which was uh, the collective leadership uh, that uh, the Chinese Communist Party had decided before him. So um, there are different views in China, and there are even among officials who disagree with this wu for diplomacy. Like, for example, Steve, your best friend, (laughs) your good friend, Ambassador (laughs) Cui Tien-Kai, his reaction to, for example, the wu for diplomacy has been very different from what we saw coming out of, uh, coming out of Beijing. But I think the, the key question is, are these views strong enough to really change the course that China has been, has been on? And I think that gets to a conviction on Xi Jinping's part, which is that China needs a strong leader. China needs one voice. China needs one direction to proceed because all these different views is only going to slow China down. So let's get it done. And then we can talk about whether we were successful. So we all know the danger of that, but unfortunately, I think that is a prevailing political culture in China today, and I don't see that being effectively challenged.
2: Can can I just add just one, just building on that? I think uh, Xi Jinping's speech um, on on May 23rd, there was a a line that stuck out to me, which I think builds on on what what Sun Yun was just saying about the worldview that Xi Jinping inhabits and what he thinks needs to happen domestically in China to assure that, that the country continues to prosper, but thrive is, he said, um, I'll just pull up the quote here. He said, we must seek development in a much more uh, instable and uncertain world. And you've seen similar comments like that from Xi Jinping over the past couple of years, basically saying, look, things are getting really nasty out there. I think obviously the, the position of the Trump administration on China has only helped confirm a pre-existing view from Xi Jinping. He's got a very, I don't mean this in a pejorative sense. He's got a very cynical, realist view of power and of of international relations. And um, I think he is essentially saying, look, the next couple of years are going to be very, very hard for China. We're going to face a lot of not only external pressure, but also hostile foreign forces in Hong Kong, in areas of our periphery, in Xinjiang. And so it's really time we, we tighten down now. And I think that includes... Um, to to what Yun was just saying on on channels of of dissent, but even within the senior leadership, we're gonna allow some disagreement. And you're right, you do see some policy disagreements. You've seen it relatively recently over qualitative easing. So you've seen these debates. I wouldn't call them dissent though. I would call them a sort of a a bounds of debate that are permissible under Xi Jinping. And he wants some amount of that um, just to hear a few different ideas, but I think this is, he's really firm in his conviction on what needs to be done, and I think a tough policy by the U.S. has really been an accelerant for Xi Jinping's worldview, and basically says, see guys, I told you, they wanted to contain us.
1: Yeah, uh, one might argue accelerant or cause. In other words, when, it, the way the administration talks about China, so just taking a, a small example would be the claim that, after they shut down Wuhan, they allowed flights to the United States with the secretary insinuating this was deliberate attempt to infect the American population. There is just no data that support. It's just a lie by our administration. It's a lie by the U.S. government. It puts the Chinese government in a position of having to respond in a way that they kind of go, you know, what do we do? This is just – they'll tweet and make up things about what we're doing. Not to excuse the other things that the Chinese government does, but when the U.S. government just outlies lies about it and tries to perpetuate these falsehoods, even today, President Trump said, no, they kept letting Chinese fly elsewhere. Well, no, that has been proved. We, we looked at the flight data. It's not true. So what, what should the Chinese do? But, but yeah, I mean, I, well, I,
2: just to, I think we got to walk and chew gum at the same time. I think we can both sit, I think we can sit here and say the way that the Trump administration, but Trump in particular, and, and, and Secretary of State Pompeo, but we, can, we can have a very long discussion about our problems we have with them and their response and, and where it's leading the U.S., at the same time, uh, I think we've got to be brutally honest about what's happening in China. And there, I have to say, you know, um, this, this more aggressive posture from Beijing didn't start in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. And I'm not pretending that, that, that we're, we're innocent. This is a dynamic, complex um, uh, uh, equation here. But I think, you know, Beijing is a, um, it's been for well over a decade moving in a much harder, harder trajectory that is including... A domestic crackdown. So it's not just about a posture vis-a-vis the United States. Uh, um, they have no tolerance for Chinese uh, articulating a different direction that they want the country to go. So I think personally, I think this predates Donald Trump. I think we can agree that the Trump administration, to me, has been an, an accelerant on this and 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 maybe a cause to some extent. But I don't I don't think this is just Beijing innocently you know sitting there and, and reacting to. Uh, the Trump administration. So I, I think we can, uh, I, I hope we can do both at the same time, which is call out the United States for where it is misrepresenting, lying, working against the interests of, of long-term U.S. security and prosperity, but at the same time really be shocked by the direction that a hardline administration under Xi Jinping is, is, is taking the country. Sun Yon. Uh
0: Yes, sir. I think uh, I, I would agree with Jude. I think both superpowers, both great powers have come up have come out of this pandemic short of leadership, and both of them have uh, come out of the pandemic probably as losers in terms of their soft powers their international credibility. I think the U.S. certainly was not fair when it finger points China as the a, as a sole reason, was the only cause of the uh, damage that the pandemic has created in, 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 the, in the United States. I think China needs to, cover its, uh, needs to carry its responsibility but I think also the U.S. internal failure to counter the pandemic effectively, that one is not on China. Okay. So um, I think coming to what, what can be done, um, I have this, uh, this interesting conversation with the Chinese, well, where I quoted Michelle Obama. that when they, she used to say, when they go low, we go high, right? But what we are seeing currently between U.S. and China is that when they go low, we all go low. Actually, we need to go lower. So we are witnessing uh, a, a downward spiral of U.S. and China competing for which country can uh, can can discard more rules or can discard more 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 laws. So um, in, and that has created a lot of difficulty. I'm sure you have too in the dialogue that we're trying to host between U.S. and China. It's so difficult to avoid the finger pointing because there are just so many things that either side could finger point the other side. So how to jump out of that vicious circle or that cycle, I think that's really a, a, a key question. So maybe the one way to look at it, which is very difficult, I, I reckon, is, uh, is from conflict, re- conflict mediation or conflict resolution. Is the ability to ask a question that instead of finger pointing the other side, what our side can do to make the relationship better? What we can do to improve the relationship. So if either side or both sides would have the um, would have the heart to do that, I think that will open up some room for constructive dialogues.
1: Jude, uh, also uh, Sunyun raises a great question about how do we get a downward spiral is the exact right term? How do we break the spiral? How do we put a floor underneath every morning I kind of get up and the floor is falling away and it's gotten worse and worse and worse. How do we put a floor under it?
2: I'm just trying to be realistic about the, the kind of the dynamics over the next three to six months through an election. Um, it's really, I, I think, I'm going to dodge the question, Steve, by or doing what they do in, on a you know, talk show where you say, that's an interesting question, but I think the more important question we need to ask. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know because I both sides now think they are in the stronger position and I think both sides are convinced of their right, righteousness for different reasons. I mean, I, th- I, think, I think Sun Yun just outlined really well Beijing's thinking about this of a, I, 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 don't, I, I think Beijing's wrong, but nonetheless, the, the thinking of this, which is, look, it's damned if we do, damned if we don't, um, so what the heck? Um, and And um, the US has been hell-bent on containment for a long time. They kept it quiet, they denied it. Now they're at least being explicit in saying it. Um, um, so I think that that logic makes sense. And so Beijing's not looking to move because it's it, it says, look, we've been getting screwed for a long time, but crucially now, I think Beijing assesses that it's composite national power. you know, its strength is such that it no longer needs to, cower in the corner like it did 15 years ago. So that's one equation. Then the other is you've got, um, and this isn't just the Trump administration, I have to say, I think the Trump administration is reflecting or drawing strength from broad dissatisfaction in the U.S. with globalization and the uh, inability of globalization, maybe by design to uh, not distribute benefits more evenly. And so uh, if the system isn't working, what the heck? I think COVID-19 and also the NBA controversy last year um, took the China issue, which was relatively wonky and within think tanks and really injected it into the mainstream in ways that I think are hard to shake. I think there's a real populist anger whipped up to be sure, but I, I don't think it's entirely fabricated. I think there's some sort of grassroots organic element of this sprinkle onto that an election season. Um, um, I think that's a really dangerous cocktail and to try and answer it, what what can shift and, and maybe merging with, with, with Sun Yun's comment on, on conflict mediation or resolution. What I, we can't control Beijing, right, in a sense that uh, domestic politics in Beijing are operating, you know, all politics are local. Um, we can compete with them internationally, but really, and this is a cliche, but that really gets back to what are some of the enduring strengths that the United States can do, which is, I think we sit in a vastly superior position in terms of the effectiveness of our, um, of our international position, our soft power, our ability to lead I think when the United States starts getting on its front feet again and instead of walking away like we did today from the WHO, I was just made that comment that Trump said like they basically bought off the WHO for one-tenth the money we did. And I thought, so you're saying openly that they're just much smarter at playing the game than we are. Um, there's a lesson in that. I think that's true. And that shows that we're just not actively leading, engaging. But crucially to me, and this is kind of my big unified theory of why US-China relations are, are so bad right now. It's not about Trump, it's not about Xi Jinping. It's about the breakdown of a institutional order that did very well from 1945 until 2008. But what we stopped doing is investing and innovating in, govern, in international governance institutions. And so we're now taking 20th century institutions like the WH, WTO and expecting them to solve 21st century problems and challenges. And so we need, to, we need to sort of take the lead and say we're gonna have a new Bretton Woods Agreement. We're gonna have a sort of a, a, a new conversation about we've got a host of new challenges created by technology, by, by new patterns of globalization, by income inequality, things we didn't have 50 or 60 years ago. And we're gonna start building and designing an institutional order that, um, that looks to sort of integrate safely balancing national security rather than what we're doing now is we're taking our roll of duct tape and we're going to all these institutions and trying to wrap the duct tape around them to keep them working. And it's that institutional inadequacy to me which is leading to the breakdown in US-China relations because if WTO isn't working, well then screw it, we just start levying tariffs left and right and that's what's driving this.
1: I'll give a commercial to the other institution that you're uh, affiliated with, CNAS, that CNAS with Eli Ratner wrote a report on how the United States needs to deal with the competition with China. And a lot of it is about investing, what we should be investing in in the United States, kind of exactly what you're talking about. And if you have a tolerance for an hour and 15-minute recording, I think that recording is on the National Committee's website. Uh, Sunyan, in normal years, the passage of a new civil law, you know, this, I think it's 1,800... uh, Articles would be a, a uh, front page news. It's barely received mention in the Western press. Um, it does things like provides civil penalties for sexual harassment. It has something, you know, it gives a right to die with dignity. Kind of as a lapsed lawyer, I was actually, I've been listening to conversation descriptions from, uh, presented by some of the drafters of that law, which are on the internet, um, and you can listen to it. Anything we should know about that?
0: Well, like you said, it's an it's a extremely long document. I've read some of the summaries of it, but I have not read the, the whole thing through yet. So I'm afraid that the, the knowledge that I can offer on that is pretty limited. But I think um, if you look at the, the directions that the civil law is pointing towards, I think they still represent an incremental, although very slow progress of the Chinese society, right? So the things that you, you have just mentioned, that they represent the direction that we do want to see China going in. But um, it's, it's just the Chinese history is never just from point A to point B. There's purely regression, a lot of regressions and followed by some progression. So um, it depends on the perspective that we, we take. And that gets back to the comments that Jude was was making. Where are we going with the US-China relations? I think there are two versions, two scenarios, one short term, one long term, that they might sound as bad news, but eventually there might be some good news, if I can be a little optimistic. In terms of the short view, we could say that, well, this is the election year, and because of Trump Administration's re-election campaign has been severely interrupted and disrupted by the COVID-19. There are some moves, there are certain developments that we otherwise would not normally see without COVID-19. So if you if you adopt that logic, then that means that, well, after the election, we probably will have some stability because the pressure imposed by the re-election uh, campaign has been has been tremendous on the Trump administration. So, like for example, when we look at the sanctions that he not announced. On Hong Kong today, he did not really touch the trade, the phase one trade deal, right? And I think that's, that's one, one signature, one sign. And the other scenario is uh, when we look at the long term, well, this is not about party politics. I agree with Jude. It's not just about Republicans or Democrats, it's about the fundamental problem in the international system. Then in that sense, I'm afraid that things will have to get worse before they get better which means that the US and China are now mutually pro- probing each other's bottom lines. They're both attempting to see where the red line really is to stop the other side. And what that means is that the two sides will probably will have to come to the brink of something very dangerous, before they can sit back and reconsider what is the consequences of our current behavior, so that might be uh, that might sound terrible, that might sound bad, but maybe that that will be what it takes for the two countries to come up with some basic bottom lines and the rules of engagement.
1: Thank you. Yep. Uh, we have a who's who of U.S.-China relations is our audience today, so let me get to the questions. Um, Deborah Seligson asks. How do you think the removal of the GDP target affects all the other targets in the 13th five-year plan? Do you think they will continue for the next year, or are local officials assuming they'll get a pass on all hard targets? That's
2: a really great question, and and, uh, one uh, one I can expect of that sophistication from from Deborah. So I think... um, um, that's a great question, I, I, this is just spitballing. My, my sense in just all the, the discourse that was surrounding the removal of the growth target was saying that um, the, the um, you're basically getting a pass this year so long as the actions you're taking are about stability, uh, economic stability and, and employment. Um, so I think, I haven't seen anything technically that has said we're gonna have a knock-on effect on all other subsidiary targets, but my sense is the spirit of this is we've got an economic and un- unemployment problem. So we're basically gonna give pretty significant latitude to lower level as officials to find the bottom, put a foundation u- under it. And of course, we know the 13 five year plan is is coming up for expiration this year. So it'll be interesting to see when we have the next five year plan, You know, we'll see drafts of it later this year, if they have now moved towards a, a more permanence or at least a, some sort of now hybrid model of some fixed targets for, for officials, but actually removing some of those, and what's, what's, this may be the kind of exogenous shock, well, I guess it's endogenous, depending on what the investigation says. But the endogenous shock in COVID-19 may be the sort of thing that is needed to allow the government to walk away from a lot of these targets without, in a sense, admitting that they are, are failing. But great, great question.
1: So Nino, you, you wanna, no? Um, <laughs> one of your PIP fellows, Isaac Cardin, one of your, your uh, other fellows, asked, there's been a sharp debate of late on the degree to which official communications from the PRC should be considered reliable signals of intention and reasonable predictions of future action versus cheap talk with little relationship to intention or action. Where do you come down on this when analyzing the Lianghui or even in general?
0: So I, you, I, you can, wanna...
2: I can weigh in, but i have to hear your thoughts on this.
0: Um, sure. I think the official communications in China, we, we always have the question that what, right? What, are, they, are they bluffing or is, is it just propaganda? I think it yearly the Chinese official communication, at least from the foreign policy point of view, represents some bottom line truth that the Chinese are trying to achieve. But it doesn't mean that they don't revise their goals when they realize that their official statements or official positions encounter problems or pushbacks. So I would say that uh, the Chinese do treat official communications as uh, somewhat a, a fog of war, that um, there are certain elements of propaganda and also bluffing coming to foreign policy and security policy, but um, it also reflects a certain level of the genuine position on their part. But Jude might have different ideas. Uh,
2: no, I, 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 think that's, that's, I think that's spot on. And of course, Isaac's referring to a, a, a Twitter debate on, on this issue. Um, for those who are wondering where the cheap talk phrase came from. Of course, the point is it really depends on the document. So in the case of the government work report, um, of course they know when they're writing that that external audiences are reading that, but that's primarily a signaling mechanism for lower level officials. So this is not a blanket statement you can take of our government documents, cheap talk. You've got to do some grunt work, which is what is the document? What is the venue? Who's delivering it? Right. And and you begin to tease out like the 19th Party Congress speech that Xi Jinping gave, you know, has a a range of audiences there. And so this is the you know, this is the hard work of, of doing analysis. So I think like when when the State of the Union address here in the United States, like that specific venue has intended audiences. Um, and, and that's the work that we have to do. So there's no generic thing. It's cheap talk for me. It really depends. When Xi Jinping goes and gives a speech at Davos, n- sorry Steve, to say this, that's cheap talk to me. That's a pure foreign audience, and they know we lap it up. It's when it's in Chinese, uh, you know, and a speech at a, at a at a at a plenum. That's the stuff I think is the real. There's where the real good stuff is.
1: Uh, Tom Gold asks. Uh, at Berkeley, can Jude and Yun try to put themselves in the shoes of China's leaders? How can they make sense of American policy, foreign and domestic, especially when most of us, I dare say, have no idea what's going on? How can they formulate foreign policy to anticipate American action and reaction? Also, please comment on how Beijing's Taiwan policy fits into the general line and tone of the Liang
0: um, I, think, I think the Chinese can't. They, they ask Americans this question. I'm sure he asked, they ask Steve, they ask Ju, they ask me, they ask Trump, that how, how, how do we really make sense of Trump's policy? And there's not very good answer from the American side either. So I think that probably reinforces the message to the Chinese that, well, we cannot predict what the U.S. will do, so the only thing we can focus is on what we can do. So I think that as to the momentum in Beijing that we need to take charge, we need to take the initiative, we need to not be surprised attacked by the Trump administration, we also need to come up with our own policies to assert our own positions instead of waiting for them to attack us. So I think this, uh, this, this inability to really gauge where the, where, the, where the Trump administration will go has uh, has strengthened the momentum in China to, uh, to, do, to, do, to pursue the goals that they see as, uh, as their important goals. And I think Taiwan is one of those, uh, is one of those issues. Ang Yanghui, people paid a lot of attention to the fact that Li Keqiang's work report did not mention 92 consensus, and he did not mention uh, peaceful in terms of the reference to unification. He only used the term promote uh, unification. And that raises a lot of questions. But then, of course, in his uh, the press conference he hosted yesterday, he added those two terms back
1: to the, uh, to, the, to, the to the government narrative. Is that because there was a lot of pushback? Uh, I think there well, was. My, the, I was uh, in, in the, um, uh, Zhang Yia-Sui's press conference, he didn't use peaceful and I was watching it. Mm. And I was quite shocked. In fact, I had to rewind the television <laughs> and then the, the work report didn't have it. And then suddenly it's back in. What happened? There
0: were a lot of speculations about whether this really signals China dropping peaceful unification as a formula for the solution of the, of the Taiwan issue. And I, I think there are strong voices in China, I'm sure Steve, you know this. There are very strong voices in China calling for the central government to revise that doctrine, to revise peaceful unification as the only solution, uh, as the 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 preferred solution to the Taiwan Taiwan issue. But I think the government is still jumping back and forth to determine whether they are ready to make such a drastic move. I think they do want to send signals to both DPP government and to the Americans that our patience is running thin and there are more and more people in China who believe that unification cannot be achieved without the use of force. So I think they're flirting with the idea, they're testing the water with the idea, but it's, I think it's primarily a deterrence message instead of a preparatory message. Thank you.
1: Jude, anything on that? No. Um, Mike Lampton. so the U.S. adopts a punitive policy regarding Hong Kong. What support can Washington expect from its allies?
2: Well, so the, the EU foreign ministers have, have met today and have talked about uh, preferring dialogue. Um, so, so probably from the EU foreign ministers, not much, um, if the Trump <laughs> administration was expecting them to sign on. Um, the UK, is in. there's an interesting discussion going on there. There's a, um, uh, you saw Zhao Lijian, the MFA, firing back at the UK government today because they have talked about at least offering a path to citizenship, Um, for I think upwards of three million who hold these special sort of these special identities as as uh, British residents overseas so uh, Beijing has said if you if these are Chinese nationals if you uh, offer them passports um, you'll you'll be in trouble Uh, but nonetheless I think the discussion is interesting in the in the the UK but um, a limitation of a of a uh, go-at-it-alone strategy in general by the U.S. is when you're, you're trying to pull people onto your side, it's, it, it can be difficult. Um, so um, I, I, don't, I don't think until we see exactly what the package that comes out, um, it'll be difficult for folks to sign on. But this is clearly a moment where the U.S. was well-poised to lead an international pushback because there is, uh, across the board, frustration and concern about Beijing's moves here. Um, so this could have been a great, and maybe it still could be a moment where the u s could um rally some support behind something meaningful the 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 problems now are, and i'll I'll stop after this, but the problems now are um, the tools that the United States is talking about using are are as as you know Mike said are are punitive towards Beijing, and it's not clear to me um, what we get for Hong Kong out of this, but more importantly, just cynically, what we get for the United States in terms of our long-term strategic competition uh, against China on this. So the two things that should matter most, Hong Kong and our competition and our rivalry with China and being strategic about this, I I don't see both of those there. And so of course it's hard to enlist support in that environment.
1: So Nguyen, anything on that? What did you make of this, what seemed quite a reasonable statement issued by the Canadian, Australian, American and UK governments, which seemed actually, yeah, made some sense about Hong Kong. Did you see that? Yeah,
2: I, did. Which... Well, I was gonna pull up the exact quote. I was just reading it earlier today. So, um, so, so I know that they had, after the, the, the statement, um, after they put it out, they tried to get the, the EU to sign onto it and the EU said, no, we're, we're fine, thank you. Um, but yeah, no. I thought that was a good. I thought that was a very good statement. Um, was it? Uh, so Australia, Britain, U.S., Canada um, said that China's moves are quote in direct conflict with its international uh, obligations. So that's obviously those sorts of statements. I think are obviously the the good first step. Um, but it 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 really it's now about what the next step is. And the U.S. has picked has chosen a course of action. I'm just worried about um, what it what it won't get us. Um, So uh, anyway, but I've already made that point, so I won't just make it again.
0: I would just add that in terms of that statement, my worry is that that might be the most that U.S. can get its allies to do. If you look at Australia's relationship with China, there's a trade war pending. And looking at Canada, the Chinese Foreign Ministry just called Canada the accomplice of the U.S. yesterday. Well, actually, earlier today. So I think there are plenty of friends that China are currently having a battle with both Australia and and Canada and UK. So um, I think the U.S. ability to enlist the support from the allies on those friends are going to be are going to be difficult.
1: But really, if we don't work with our allies, whether it's on trade issues, security issues, or others. Aren't the policies doomed to failure? I mean, th- this, I, I said so President Trump made reference to this requirement that we'll, uh, that we'll soon put in place, which will delist Chinese companies if they don't comply with certain audit requirements, which is something which is probably the right policy, except if Hong Kong, Singapore, Tokyo and London don 't agree to it; they just move there, and it doesn 't make any difference but it 's the same concept that applies to virtually every sector that if we don 't do it with our allies, you know export controls what are we doing
2: yeah yeah I mean this is such a this is i, I mean I, I totally agree with you it's just I've, how many times have we made that statement I mean it just you know working with our allies has become something of a of a of a cliche at this point because we just say it's I, but i think look even if even if you know even if you really want to take a a tough line on china you know even if which which i do i mean i think long term competition with china is is arguably our single most important component of our foreign policy on that side of it though allies are not sort of a distraction or, or an annoyance they're a central part of that. And so even the tough on China side of this requires that we have a well-coordinated, calibrated alliance strategy, even if we recognize that there are gonna be significant areas where we don't agree with, with the UK or with Germany or with the EU or with Canada. That's natural and, 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 and inevitable. Um, but we have, at, at this current moment, relative disdain for, for alliances and for allies. Um, we see them as baggage and as burden, except when we want them to sign on for something and then we get really angry when, when they don't. But I think this shows, the, your point is, especially on economic statecraft, um, it, it's, it's, it's impossible to do this without working to, in a coordinated fashion. Because as you say, a lot of these, there's such slippage and leakage possible for where capital and, and companies move that if you don't have a wide net to try and, to try and coordinate, then, it, then it's relatively ineffective. So I totally agree.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, I think U.S. will have to develop some realistic expectations as for what the allies will deliver. U.S., we are in a great power competition with China. So this is a competition for supremacy. It's a, com- a competition for global leadership or even global dominance in a, in a way. But European countries are not. And Canada is certainly not in a great power competition with uh, with China. So there are certain issues I think allies will be on the same side with uh, the with U.S., for example, the Chinese human rights record or China's ideological push globally. I think those are the issues that allies will be on our side. But if we demand European allies to be on our side in order to, for U.S. to win the great power competition with China, I think our allies also have their own interest to take into consideration because they are not in this
1: competition with China. But my point is, if we take these actions unilaterally, they are self-defeating. So investment restrictions, if we have those investment restrictions because of this great power competition, Europe, Japan, Korea, ASEAN don't have it, what are we doing? We're just taking capital away from the United States, taking jobs away from the United States and putting it in those places, export controls. If goods can be produced in the EU, Japan, Korea, like a lot of chips, and we're restricting US companies, we're just punishing ourselves. It's policies that even if, I think as Jude said, you wanna get tough on China, doing it yourself, is pointless. In fact, it's worse than pointless, it's counterproductive. It ends up hurting Americans. Who said Americans need to be willing to pay a price for this competition. Need to be willing to pay a price. You tell it to the machinist, you tell it to the dock worker, you look them in the eye and you say you got to pay this price. I don't think they want to pay that price, but um, let me go to another question. Tom Kehoe from Kingsbridge Strategies. Defense Minister Wei Fenghe, I assume this was at the Lianghui, made some very aggressive remarks this week about Sino-American relationship, relations being at high risk. Is this saber rattling or comments to be worried about?
0: I think this is in line with the general perception of the deterioration of external relations for China since the beginning of the COVID-19, I think this echoes China's developed position on on DPP uh, on Taiwan's pro-independence policy in Taiwan. So I think the PLA has been mobilized or has been instructed to be prepared for potential events that will require their 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 service to defend the country. I don't think that's just just. It's just a warning message. I think they literally see this as a bottom line issue and they literally see the need to, 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 be, to be prepared militarily.
1: Mm-hmm. Good. I,
2: yeah, I mean, I, I, so just putting our, our hats on as, as trying to be intellectually empathetic to what the other side is saying, um, it would be a dereliction of duty if the PLA wasn't seeing an escalation occurring right now in the US-China relations. So I I think the the saber rattling I see I saw this less as a threat to the United States, although of course they understand their messages how it's interpreted. But I think this is more you know he he basically said look we got to we got to buck up our fighting spirit we have to uh, prepare for you know and we have to prepare for increased instability and 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 tension in the relationship. On that simple statement, uh, I think that's an accurate diagnosis of where the relationship is right now. So. one of the things I'll just, uh, just I, I notice now that as escalations are, are increasing, um, people are uh, pulling out select comments from various sides and from various mediums and holding these up as saying, you know, the Chinese government said X when it may have been the English language edition of the Global Times. And I'm not saying we ignore the English language edition of the Global Times, but I think this is where the ability to contextualize Um, where statements are coming from, where they're directed to this cheap talk argument earlier, it's going to be so, so important because we have to interpret differently an English language Global Times editorial than we do a speech by Xi Jinping. Um, And I think it could be very dangerous, especially in a social media era where a statement can be pulled out. I remember last year, there was a, someone was running a clip from someone in the PLA talking about putting boots on the ground in, in Hong Kong and it was sort of made to seem like this was a live yesterday comment. And turns out it was from kind of, I forget the context of it, it was 10 years ago. And um, But of course in this, you know, in this environment, a lot of these things are, we've got a lot of gasoline around and a lot of these statements are, are, are matches. So I'm not trying to, I think there was a great question to ask. It was just the um, contextualizing this is gonna become so important because the temperature can be raised very, very quickly if we don't have an accurate calibration of what the message was intended to do.
1: We have sadly run out of time, but this has been a fabulous, fabulous discussion, and you have simply convinced us once again how great the PIP program is, that we were brilliant enough to select both of you, and that both of you were fulfilling the vision of the PIP PIP program, which is, that's our public intellectuals program, which is to further rational discussions about China and U.S.-China relations, and you are both terrific for giving of your time. Thank you so much, and I see the audience remained unchanged the whole time, so clearly you They're were- are all
2: checking their email or on Twitter. I do the same <laughs> you, thing. You
1: had them mesmerized. You had them <laughs> mesmerized, but everybody have a great weekend. Stay safe, um, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next week, and Thank thanks you. again, dude. Thank you. you, Bye Thank now.
0: you, Steve. Bye-bye. Bye. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.